Welcome to Inspiration from American History with Rebecca Price Janney. Today's story is called Knocking on Heaven's Door. In the middle part of the 19th century, America's urge to make the world a better place remained undaunted. The outlook for human and technological progress was bright, and the appetite for exploration persisted. Still, the people lived in the shadow of death. Life expectancy had fallen dramatically, from age 56 in 1790 to just 48 in 1860. Major diseases such as typhoid, scarlet fever, and tuberculosis cut down lives, often with a terrifying suddenness. Understanding of those maladies was at a practically medieval level. And as Americans became increasingly mobile, they came into contact with a variety of illnesses they had not encountered before. In addition, childhood mortality was high, with one in every five infants not making it to their first birthday. Since they couldn't rely on doctors to cure their diseases, and they didn't have much more than folk remedies to provide relief, where did Americans turn for solace? Most appealed to God. A Christian worldview dominated American thought, and it was Christian, predominantly Protestant ideas that informed their thinking about life and death. People often became Christians in response to their suffering, finding peace and strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow in their faith. Increasingly, they saw themselves as having a say in the matter, unlike a severe Calvinism of an earlier era. Along with that new mindset came more of an accent on the joys of heaven, which included reunions with loved ones than the terrors of hell. This was a major shift that had begun a century earlier when Emanuel Swedenborg published his views about heaven. Distinctly anthropocentric, this heaven was a place where earthly existence was continued, but on a higher plane, including the continuation of the love people had known on earth. This perspective peaked in the mid-19th century and into the opening years of the 20th. Prior to this time in Western Christianity, the emphasis was on intimacy with God in the afterlife. A heartbreaking fact of life during this time was the helplessness parents often felt when their children became ill and died. Just as there had been a shift over the previous few decades in terms of how Americans viewed God and heaven, so their perception of childhood had also changed. Children were no longer as necessary as they once had been to the household economy, and middle-class parents were beginning to regard them and childhood itself in a more sentimental way. This created a delicate balancing act as they attempted to hold their children loosely and at God's disposal. Examples abound. In Louisa May Alcott's semi-autobiographical novel, Little Women, the author tells the tender story of Beth, 
the most spiritual of the March sisters. After selflessly ministering to a desperately poor German family, she contracted smallpox and nearly died. Although she survived, her heart was so weakened she only lived a few more years. On her deathbed, she exuded confidence and joy about going to heaven, inspiring her sister Joe to become more like her and to look forward to someday being reunited with Beth in the hereafter. American literature was full of such stories, including the best-selling novel The Wide, Wide World by Susan Bogert Warner. A deeply sentimental work, the novel struck historian J.C. Furness as a massive bouquet of deathbed scenes. These books weren't meant just to entertain, but to demonstrate how faithful Christians should face the last enemy. In real life, author Harriet Beecher Stowe suffered the loss of her year-old son Charlie to cholera, and she reconciled herself to his death by thinking of him as a special child. She mused, Is there a peculiar love given us for those that God wills to take from us? Is there not something brighter and better around them than around those who live? Why else, in so many households, is there a tradition of one brighter, more beautiful, more promising than all the rest, laid early low? Although diseases that few understood claimed many lives, illness was not the only dreaded killer. By 1860, the valley of the shadow lengthened across a divided nation on the threshold of civil war. When Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860, the country was irreparably torn apart by sectional difficulties. A month after his inauguration in April 1861, war broke out, and over the next four years, the nation's families endured catastrophic losses of loved ones, homes, businesses, and farms. With death such a frequent companion, Americans drew strength from their faith, and they had a sense of urgency about making sure their loved ones were prepared to meet their Maker on the right terms. In this atmosphere, Americans were becoming more committed to a general evangelical Christianity and less particular about denominational affiliations. Nonetheless, a belief in heaven and hell remained a firm feature, with thoughts of heaven providing relief for their emotional and physical distress. Many leading Civil War personalities subscribed to this state of belief, including General Ulysses S. Grant. Although he never formally joined a church, he identified himself as a Methodist. Grant's Confederate counterpart, Robert E. Lee, was a Christian who encouraged his men to have cross-denominational prayer meetings. On one occasion, as he rode along, he noticed a group of soldiers praying, and he stopped. Dismounting, he removed his hat and stood among the men in an attitude of profound respect and attention 
while the earnest prayer proceeded in the midst of the thunder of artillery and the explosions. In May 1863, when Lee learned that Stonewall Jackson had been wounded at the Battle of Chancellorsville, he sent word to Jackson that he was praying for him. When a suitable occasion offers, he wrote, give him my love and tell him that I wrestled in prayer for him last night, as I never prayed, I believe, for myself. Thomas Stonewall Jackson had become a Christian while serving in the Occupation Army after the Mexican-American War. At the time, he was experiencing what would turn out to be a lifetime of stomach-related illnesses. He wrote about them in a letter to his sister, but not as a complaint. Rather, Jackson told her he regarded the affliction as coming from heaven sovereign, as a way of turning him from a life that he felt had been leading him straight to hell. Jackson said the illness was a, quote, punishment for my offenses against his holy laws and have probably been the instrument of turning me from the path of eternal death to that of everlasting life, unquote. His conversion was deep and lasting, and he became known as a model of Christian character, as well as something of a Christian character. The men under his command sometimes noticed Jackson stumbling around on his own, falling and picking himself up again, looking very drunk. They knew better. He was simply praying with his eyes closed. Jackson once said he felt as safe in battle as he did in his bed, that he had a peaceful assurance that God had appointed a certain day for his death. This reflected his very Presbyterian belief in the sovereignty of God. In May 1863, his own troops accidentally shot him, and eight days later his time came. He accepted death calmly, saying, I always wanted to die on a Sunday. Besides the high-ranking military men, what of those serving under them? Did they give much thought to eternal matters as they slogged in and out of treacherous military campaigns, never knowing if or when the next bullet would have their name on it? In the initial weeks and months of the war, most of the soldiers were caught up in a cavalier attitude. They were young. They were going to live forever. They were going to teach the enemy a lesson. As the war began to drag on, however, many soldiers started to think about death and life. Are you ready to meet your maker? Was a constantly asked question among themselves. A great revival occurred in late 1863 in the Army of Northern Virginia and continued until May of the following year when an attack by General Grant broke it up. In that period, about 7,000 men, or 10% of Lee's army, came to faith in Christ. Somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 Union soldiers made professions of faith during the war, while in the smaller Confederate forces, at least 100,000 did so. How many more, however, who were already believers, did the revivals encourage 
and inspire. Those who waited on the home front for loved ones to return also found solace in their faith that this world with its troubles would soon pass away. Their deepest yearnings were for the perfection of heaven where they would be reunited with those who did not return. They didn't speak as Americans do today about the dead looking down on them. Rather, those who remained looked up to God and their eternal home. On June 10, 1861, an anonymous mother wrote a letter to her daughter in which she spoke of the ability of a sustaining faith in Christ. Her attitude reflected the way generations of Americans face death, which was such a frequent visitor. My dear daughter, she wrote, death is solemn. To lay a beloved friend in the silent tomb is a heavy trial, but oh, there are much heavier trials than death. There is a sweet comfort to the heart when we have good hope our friend rests in the bosom of eternal life. But oh, it requires fortitude, strength, and heroism to battle with living troubles. Thank you for joining me for Inspiration from American History. I'm Rebecca Price Janney.